It's mid-July 1717 in Bridgetown, Barbados. A balmy summer breeze wafts along the dockside in the Bay of Carlisle. In the colony's bustling port, the HMS Scarborough lies at anchor. In his cabin, Captain Hume reviews his logs and ledgers and prepares for battle. The 34-year-old Royal Navy officer is a battle-hardened war veteran and a seasoned campaigner. He's also a renowned pirate hunter. There are few enemies who cause him doubt or concern. But today's action will require all of his years of experience. He sips a glass of Madeira wine, steeling himself for the fight ahead. Spanish privateers and French warships are one thing, but today he must face a foe that is far more slippery and far more dangerous. A politician. Actually worse, a politician's attack dog. Henry Lascelles, the British government's collector of customs in Barbados and loyal lackey to Governor Robert Lowther. Lowther and Lascelles have made his life a misery. Hume is engaged in a bitter legal dispute over the control and ownership of a prize vessel he has recently captured, as well as her controversial cargo. Hume has been in combat countless times. Musket balls and cutlasses are his bread and butter. But the weapons of colonial bureaucracy, corruption, greed, deceit, these will end a man's career quicker than a cannonball. The impending visit of Henry Lascelles is just the latest attack from Governor Lowther. The early skirmishes were conducted via letter. The Admiralty hadn't prepared him for the political consequences of successfully doing his job. Who could have guessed that hunting the pirates was the easy part? Moored alongside the Scarborough is a Portuguese warship of eight guns, the Blanco. In its hold, under lock and key, are two very different cargoes. A substantial amount of gold and silver, and 17 languishing Frenchmen. Pirates. Hume well knows that Governor Lowther is only interested in taking possession of one of these consignments. For over a month, his wretched prisoners have been clapped in irons, awaiting their fates. If they were unsavory types when he captured them near Venezuela, their month-long stay in the ship's dank hold hasn't improved their characters, nor their smell. He's almost beginning to feel sorry for them. Almost. As he awaits the arrival of Lascelles, whom he can already see brandishing legal papers and waving customs forms, Captain Hume pens one final letter to Governor Lowther and dispatches it with a runner. He also sends a second copy to the public notary of Barbados. If it's war he wants, it's war he'll have. Hume feels a certain satisfaction anticipating the governor's response. He knows somewhere across the bay in the resplendent governor's mansion, the arrogant young tyrant will be having a fit. 
It's easy to imagine inside his tropical mahogany-panelled study, Governor Lowther slamming his fist onto the dark English oak of his desk as he reads the words of Captain Hume, accusing him of embezzlement. Spitting with rage, he is resolved to have that ship and her precious cargo. To hell with the prisoners. They stay on board and continue to rot. Weeks later, on the 28th of August, the Scarborough makes ready to depart Barbados. Captain Hume has received reports of English traders being attacked by pirates near Tobago. With the matter of the 17 Blanco pirates still unresolved, he leaves the ship and her stagnant human cargo under guard in Carlisle Bay. The Scarborough weighs anchor and sets sail once again on the hunt for pirates. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Two guys drove to work, neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. In the autumn of 1718, the war on pirates was in full swing. By November 1718, hundreds of pirates had renounced piracy, for the time being anyway, including some of the most notorious. The pardon was a strong incentive if you want to avoid the hangman's noose. The Crown is passing aggressive anti-piracy laws. Colonies are finally going after pirates themselves. The Royal Navy is empowered to take matters into their own hands. 
those who continue to defy the law pay the price, as Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet soon found out. However, many pirates remain at large, or worse, have gone back to pirating. What are the authorities to do? To understand why piracy was able to flourish in this period, and will continue to persist, you have to understand the difficulties in locating, catching, and prosecuting pirates in the first place. The truth is, even with all these new measures, catching pirates is hard, nearly impossible, and the pirates know it. Before this point in 1718, there had really only been one Royal Navy officer who earned a reputation as a pirate hunter, Captain Francis Hume. His story really begins back in 1716. After countless delays, Hume, an ambitious, fresh-faced young officer, is anxious to get on with his mission. It's the summer of 1716 in Portsmouth, England. In His Majesty's Royal Navy dockyard, a 34-year-old Francis Hume storms out of the supply office in a rage. More delays. First it was the masts, then it was munitions. Now he must replace a damaged longboat of all things. Hume's patience is a breaking point. For months, he's had to fight the bean counters for every nail and every yard of rope. It's to his credit that Captain Hume is so eager to get on with the mission so many others would happily avoid. Few postings in the Empire carry such risk as a station ship in the West Indies, even in peacetime. But with risks come rewards. Dr. David Wilson is an academic and author of Suppressing Piracy in the Early 18th Century. So, on the one hand, this might be one way to advance their careers. So they're stationed in the Caribbean and North America, so they tend to be junior officers. And so they want to make their name and to return to different service, to maybe more desirable service. Because service in the Western Atlantic is quite miserable and the threat of death is very clear. There's a lot of people die in this service, so they don't really want to be there for that long. On top of long voyages, disease, Spanish privateers, hostile waters, and the possibility of war, there's pirates. Hume has been partially selected for this posting, aside from no one else wanting it, due to his relevant experience. A career sailor, coming from the lesser line of a noble Scottish family, young Francis left Edinburgh as a boy traveling to England to pursue a military career. As a cadet, he joined the Navy and entered active service in 1702, at the age of 19. Judicious and hardworking, by the age of 25, he was second lieutenant aboard HMS Falmouth, where he saw action in the wars with France and Spain. In 1711, off the coast of New Guinea in West Africa, they fought and captured two French vessels. The year before, they had defeated a French privateer in the English Channel. Hume earned his commission the hard way. It wasn't purchased for him like some of his affluent peers. Now a newly minted captain, Hume makes his way along the Portsmouth docks and strides up the gangway to board his vessel. The HMS Scarborough, a small but powerful fifth-rate ship of the line, with 32 guns and a crew of 145 under his command. 
As Hume crosses the freshly swabbed deck, smartly dressed crewman, buttons glinting in the sun, snaps to attention. Assessing the final repairs, he feels a deep satisfaction at the excellent condition of his vessel. Regardless, Hume scowls and reprimands his lieutenant, James Smith, for the state of the rigging. There's always room for improvement. As luck, or perhaps fate, would have it, this is the fourth warship to carry the name Scarborough. The previous three all fell victim to pirates at one time or another. French pirates, specifically. A sign of the times, perhaps. And perhaps a sign of things to come. In early summer 1716, Hume finally gets the order to set sail. The Scarborough is to proceed to take up station at Barbados in the Caribbean. Tasked with patrolling British waters in the Lesser Antilles. More than that, they will be ferrying an important passenger to Barbados. Robert Lowther, the island's newly appointed governor. Or rather, the newly reappointed governor. At 35, Lowther is about the same age as Hume, and like Hume, has fought hard to climb to his current position. Though some might say through far less honorable battles and for far greater rewards. Hume doesn't know much about the governor, except some hearsay, rumors of political controversy that saw him briefly recalled to London. He hears that Lowther married into his fortune, an elderly Barbadian heiress, from which he took possession of a great sugar plantation, and with that, the keys to the colony's social elite. He's ruthless and power-hungry by all accounts. The night before they're due to depart, the two men dine together in his cabin. Under flickering candlelight, they share a decanter of claret and a side of roast beef. Hume is relieved to find Lowther to be good company. They will be working closely together in Barbados. He finds they agree on many things, including the unacceptable threat posed by piracy. At first light, as the Scarborough drifts easily out of the Portsmouth docks, Hume, dressed in his freshly starched uniform, takes one last look at England as they slip away. He can't help but marvel at the magnificent array of naval hardware around him. Third and second-rate warships, thousands of tons carrying hundreds of men and bristling with cannon. Warships bound for the Baltic to battle the Swedes. Others would patrol the Mediterranean and the East Indies, everywhere it seems other than the Caribbean. Dr. Manushag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. The War of the Spanish Succession is settled, but the Great Northern War is also still going on, right? That goes on until 1721. Because it's being fought primarily along Scandinavian trade routes, Britain needs to defend her shipping from Swedish privateers. I think one of the other things that comes after the peace is there's an increased naval presence to hold Gibraltar, right? Like that's eating up a lot of naval resources which is one of the reasons that it's very hard to quash piracy initially. You see that naval vessels are concentrated in Europe. Europe is the main theater of warfare and interest. So yeah, the naval vessels that are sent to the Caribbean and North America 
are sent quite reluctantly because they don't have the resources or the finances to maintain these vessels overseas for a very long time. Many have tried to quantify the real threat pirates pose to Britain's shipping and trade. By 1716, the Board of Trade and the Admiralty are under constant pressure from the colonies to send reinforcements. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. Pirates did pose a serious threat. There were many ships that were taken, but they didn't cripple shipping in the Atlantic for the period during which that they were operating. Because I could tell you, if they absolutely crippled shipping and they stopped the flow of goods and slaves and rum and all these things that were traveling on ships back and forth between Africa, Europe, America, the Caribbean colonies, piracy would have ended overnight because the entire might of the British, French, Spanish Navy would have descended on the Caribbean and rooted out these pirates if 20% or 30% of all the shipping in the Atlantic was being waylaid by pirates, I can guarantee you there would have been a very different response. If the threat the pirates pose to Britain's global interests has been exaggerated, the dangers they pose to individual ships is very real indeed. So Hume can't help but feel apprehensive aboard his modest vessel, thinking about the vast tracts of ocean he will face alone. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The voyage from the old world to the new takes around seven weeks. At best, the journey is tough going. In bad weather and rough seas, it's horrendous, especially on the crew. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Being a sailor, particularly a long distance sailor, was an incredibly dangerous occupation. Perhaps the most dangerous of all. If you're eating salty meat and weevily bread and you're slowly running out of any kind of fresh vegetables or foods, the water after a few weeks in the barrels is turning green and scuzzy. So essentially the crew is drinking beer and rum. So you're drunk all the time. You're out there getting sunburned. And then you have all of the dangers of being on a ship. 
barrels break free and storms and roll around and cut off hands and fingers and legs. There's a reason that pirates are depicted with peg legs and patches for eyes and hooks for arms because all merchant sailors were missing limbs and the rest from all of these dangers. The crew are good English sailors. In a fight, there are none better. But like all mariners, they're uncivil, insubordinate, and prone to idleness if given the chance. Hume knows from experience that order must be maintained through discipline, along with copious amounts of beer or rum. Half a pint per man, per day, in fact. Still, he won't hesitate to have a man lashed for pilfering rations or shirking work. It's the only way to run a ship. August 1716. The Scarborough cuts through the sparkling Caribbean waters, heading south around the headland. Rocky shores give way to white sand beaches, and eventually the palm-fringed coves reveal Carlisle Bay and Bridgetown, the capital of Barbados. You may recall from earlier episodes, by the autumn of 1716, piracy is running rampant across the Caribbean. Hornigold, Jennings, and one Edward Thatch, later known as Blackbeard, among others, are laying waste to Spanish and French shipping off Cuba and the Bahamas. The Royal Navy is hardly going to spring into action to protect foreign shipping. So there's already a limited number of naval vessels in this Western Atlantic. But at this point, there's even less than normal. And at first, because pirates, especially in 1716, are mostly targeting Spanish vessels, especially in and around Cuba, the Crown don't really respond to it. They don't see it as being such a significant issue. But more and more pirates are now turning on British vessels too, especially those ploughing the sea lanes of the Lesser Antilles. This patch of territory is now Captain Hume's responsibility and it's a responsibility he intends to take seriously. Two names in particular are becoming notorious. Bellamy and Labuse. After a few months acclimatizing to the West Indies, in December, Hume is called to Governor Lowther's office. Lowther is in a fury. Pirates are raiding Antigua merchants bound for Barbados. He requests Hume to go out in search of these villains. But Hume reluctantly declines. His ship is disabled, or rather, her crew is, decimated by dysentery and malaria. So you're in the tropics. Disease would be absolutely terrible. Disease would inflict these people, and many of them would die from it, especially starting to encounter tropical diseases that they didn't have resistance to, or certainly that sailors who hadn't been to the tropics before didn't have resistance to. So Francis Hume, in response, says basically his crew are diminished, they're sick and unwell, so he can't go on this voyage. And you find that a lot. Naval captains refuse because of that reason. Their crews are sick, their vessels are not up to it, basically. Lowther noted in his letters that Captain Hume, commander of HMS the Scarborough, represented that his ship was so much disabled by the mortality and desertion of his mariners that he had not men sufficient to navigate her. It's a problem common to all new vessels arriving in the Caribbean, a problem made worse by naval regulations prohibiting recruitment. But Lowther, to his credit, does something unusual. He personally finances the pirate hunting crews, 
Upon this representation, my friends and I gave him so much money as enabled him to get pretty nigh his complement of men. Hume takes on sufficient replacements to make the Scarborough seaworthy. By now, the appeals for a pirate hunting voyage have been joined by a neighboring colony. Governor Walter Hamilton of the Leeward Islands, who has no stationship of his own, begs for Hume to hurry to Antigua. Those same names are mentioned again, Bellamy and Labuse. But at this point in time as well, from 1716 to 1717, the Leeward Islands doesn't have a station ship at all because the warship that had been stationed there returned to Britain without waiting for a replacement. So again, that station has now been completely left without any naval support. And when you think about the geography of the region, what that means is you've got two vessels to patrol the entirety of the Caribbean. So you've got one in Jamaica and one in Barbados, and they are the only two naval vessels that the British have there to hunt pirates. So it's not actually that surprising that piracy boomed in this period. On January 4th, 1717, the Scarborough arrives in Antigua. On their arrival, there's new intelligence on the pirates' location. Samuel Bellamy and Olivier Labuse are at it again. English and Frenchmen joined in an unholy alliance terrorizing His Majesty's citizens in the British Virgin Islands just a few weeks ago. In a bid to strike whilst they can, Governor Hamilton provides more men for the voyage including a platoon of 40 colonial soldiers. With the additional men, Hume believes they'll have a fighting chance against the pirates should they manage to engage them. The truth is, many other captains wouldn't even attempt the mission. The vessels that are stationed in the Caribbean and North America tend to be fifth-rate or sixth-rate vessels. Now, a fifth-rate vessel is a vessel with between 30 and 40 guns, and a sixth-rate vessel is that with either 20 or 24 guns. So it's the smallest ones that you can really get. And what this means is they don't pack a lot of firepower compared to the pirate vessels, for example. I mean, in 1717, the pirates still largely have the naval vessels on the run. The pirates had become such an actual existential danger the fact that people like Bellamy and then Blackbeard and others had traded their way up to frigate-class vessels that were endangering the Royal Navy frigates. It is getting to a point where Commodores and Governors are ordering Royal Navy vessels to stay in port for fear of nearby pirates. And should any foolhardy captain actually want to pursue a pirate, then the intelligence is often weeks old. And so naval captains are asked to respond to information weeks after the fact that it's useful, basically. So it's really up to them to go out and search and to hope to find a pirate. But that takes a really proactive naval captain who's willing to go and search for pirates in all these different locales. So in January 1717, Governor Hamilton is delighted with Hume's willingness to answer his plea. He writes, I gave an account to Captain Hume, commander of the Scarborough then on the said station, of the pirates being in these seas, and urged the necessity of his proceeding in quest of them, which he with great cheerfulness undertook. Some have speculated that Hume may have extra motivation, aside from career advancement, for taking on such a risky mission. The Humes of the Scottish Lowlands were well known to many in England, notorious even. A number of them, including relatives of Francis, are even now being investigated and tried for high treason for their part in the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. One relative, George Hume, was executed in September at Marshalsea 
just as Captain Francis Hume was arriving in the West Indies flying the King's colours. Despite his years of service, he may still have wanted to prove beyond doubt his loyalty to the Crown. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's January 16th, 1717. HMS Scarborough skirts around the St. Croix coastline. The lush, mountainous island, whilst beautiful, is also menacing. Morning clouds hang low over thick, tropical jungle that covers the island. For months, Samuel Bellamy and Olivier Labuse have terrorized the Caribbean, using this small island as their base. Well, not for much longer. Hume knows what to expect. The cannons are ready. His crew is primed. Below deck, soldiers wait with loaded muskets and bated breath. On the other hand, the pirates anchored in the shallow cove are completely unprepared for what's about to occur. High on the foredeck, leaning over the rail, Hume strains his eye down his spyglass and assesses the half a dozen ships in the bay. A hodgepodge of small vessels are at anchor. Goods are being ferried by boat between them. Men are on shore, cooking and laughing. The largest vessel is a galley of about 20 guns, by Hume's estimate. Alongside her is a pair of sloops, another eight or ten guns on each, perhaps. The Scarborough is outnumbered and outgunned. But she has the element of surprise, an advantage Hume doesn't intend to waste. He scans the ships again, looking for a definitive sign that these are the pirates he's after. They could be French, English, both, or neither. So once you have received intelligence of a pirate operating nearby, so you are a proactive naval captain, you do go out and search for these pirates. How do you identify that the ship that you're after, that is the pirate vessel? It's really difficult at times to tell who's a pirate and who isn't. It depends on how visible they are being at that point in time. You might catch them in the act, which is ideal. Hume lowers his spyglass and considers. Only one way to be sure. If they flee, they're pirates. If they return fire, they're pirates. Hume signals the pilot. The Scarborough sails into the mouth of the harbour, blocking their escape. 
Hume gives the order to come about and open fire. The pirates are stunned by the telltale roll of thunder. As the soft whistle of incoming ordnance grows rapidly into a deafening shriek, they frantically dive for cover. Suddenly, red-hot cannonballs rain down on them, striking the vessels and pounding the beach. Some men rush to their makeshift gun battery on the beach and return fire as the rest scramble into their boats and try desperately to row back to their ships. Hume's gunners are well-trained. They adjust their range and continue to bombard the frenzied pirates. They target the larger ships first, before they can bring their guns to bear. One sloop is hit several times at the waterline and starts to sink. The barrage from the beach is also quickly snuffed out, along with the pirate gunners. A cry of alarm goes up on the Scarborough. The galley has deployed her oars and is quickly maneuvering out of the harbor. Hume knows his prey is on that ship. But it's not the prey Hume is expecting. It is a case of mistaken identity after all. Bellamy and Olivier Labuse are long gone, along with their crews. It's Jean Martel who's been caught in the act. Martel's gang is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And their luck isn't improving. In the rush to escape, the galley runs aground. It's stuck and being pummeled by cannon fire. Martel gives the order to abandon ship, but not before setting fire to it, perhaps hoping to escape under the smokescreen. He is ruthless and cruel, giving no consideration to the dozens of enslaved Africans still chained below deck. They're condemned to death, though some manage to swim to shore. In the confusion, Martel does manage to slip out of the harbor on a prize sloop. Hume orders the Scarborough to give chase, but the smaller vessel is too speedy and gets away. Another problem, typical of pirate hunting. The fifth and sixth rate vessels, which are relatively small and fast, when they come up against smaller vessels like sloops, they're no match whatsoever. So pirates and sloops and other smaller vessels can escape through shallower waters than these larger ships. So pirates just escape through the region. And because pirates are so used to navigating this region, they also a lot of the time know more about where to escape to than naval vessels and naval crews. After returning to the bay, Hume salvages what he can in terms of prizes. They conduct a brief search for the remaining pirates and enslaved people who escaped into the surrounding jungle but the thick forests make it near impossible. They depart, leaving any survivors marooned and facing starvation. They're as good as dead. Or should be. Captain Hume returns to Antigua with two prize vessels and cargo worth around 450 pounds, including eight enslaved people who are possibly worse off now than they were with the pirates. Hume also returns with his reputation considerably enhanced. Not a bad day's work, all told. Governor Hamilton writes, I must do him the justice to say that nothing on his part has been wanting to comply with his duty in endeavoring not only to destroy their vessels, but even to take their men. But their retiring to the woods made it impracticable, so that he was obliged to come away and leave them on the island. 
However, Hamilton and Hume will soon discover that even in this rare success, the pirates still come out on top. As we saw in Episode 7, Black Sam Bellamy Part 2, the Martell pirates that escaped Hume will later link up with Bellamy, boosting his fleet. Now what does this actually do? What does this change in the region? Honestly, not very much. Hume has dealt with these pirates and he's captured some pirates, so that's proactive, that's great. It gives the Navy something to be publicised. But the rest of the pirates, the vast majority of the crew that escaped, we learn later on that they've just joined with Bellamy. Bellamy comes to the island, picks them up, which is probably what was going to happen anyway, and they sail off and continue to commit piracies. So you have all this coordination, you have all this also finance, and it does find some success, but the success is pretty short-lived. And what does it really change in the grand scheme of things? Not very much. The victory at Saint-Croix is typical of the few successes the Navy has against pirates. Generally catching pirate crews at anchor and trapping them in shallow bays. Even these traps could still end in fierce combat, as Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet both found out. Throughout the period, very rarely did a Royal Navy vessel engage a pirate ship at sail in open waters, which, given the power of the Royal Navy, is somewhat shocking. There's never really that many successes against pirates by the Navy. And the reason for that is because it's extremely hard to find pirates and to hunt pirates down and to have the right vessels to hunt pirates. So they're never really prepared for it. They never have the resources necessary to deal with pirates. If a pirate vessel could be identified at sea, it then had to be caught. And it turns out even if the pursuing Navy warship was small enough and nimble enough to give chase, they almost always lost the race. Amazingly, this is due to poor policy regarding ship maintenance. And the station ships were terribly neglected. I mean, the station ship in Virginia was in such bad shape. If you read the captain's letters, I mean, they didn't dare leave the port. There's rots. A lot of these vessels weren't seaworthy and were absolutely afraid to return to England at the end of their duties that they wouldn't make it back right, that their vessel wasn't capable of crossing the ocean again. So the state of the Navy's deployment in the Americas was not good in 1717. By the time the sixth-rate HMS Seaford finally arrives to take up station in the Leeward Islands, she has already been at sea five months and is in dire need of careening, clearing of barnacles and detritus that will rot her hull. But the Admiralty categorically forbids this, and yet, Hume, once again, in spite of these disadvantages, strives to do his best. And in doing so, he nearly changed the course of history. It's the 6th of February, 1717. Captain Hume makes a note in his log of another close encounter with pirates. A pirate ship of 36 guns and 250 men, and a sloop of 10 guns and 100 men, was said to be cruising amongst the Leeward Islands. After picking up a company of soldiers, the Scarborough joins up with HMS Seaford and gives chase, eventually losing sight of the pirates gone down the north side of Hispaniola. And not just any pirates, it seems. Charles Johnson's general history, which accurately details the engagement at Saint-Croix, suggests the pirate in question was Blackbeard, and what followed was a sea battle for the ages. A few days after, Teach fell in with the Scarborough Man of War of 30 guns, who engaged him for some hours, 
but she, finding the pirate well-manned and having tried her strength, gave over the engagement and returned to Barbados, the place of her station, and Teach sailed toward the Spanish America. Unfortunately, it seems what would have been a clash of mythic proportions is just that, a myth. Angus Constam is the author of Blackbeard, America's most notorious pirate. Captain Johnson's account, he comes up with a story about him encountering this British warship and he fights it, the, the Scarborough, which is nonsense because I've looked at the Scarborough's log and there's no, it was in the same waters, but there was nothing about any encounter with the pirate ship at the time. So they kind of missed each other, but Captain Johnson, just to show how good he was at beefing up a story, he turned this into the sea battle that he kind of threw in there. Whilst sadly this battle didn't happen, the story shows Hume's legendary reputation as a pirate hunter. It's hard to imagine another man chasing down the Queen Anne's revenge in open water. And this won't be Hume's last encounter with the most notorious pirates of the Caribbean. In the early summer of 1718, Hume takes the Scarborough on a tour of the South American coast. On June 10th, he swings north towards the Venezuelan island of La Blanquilla, Blanco Island to the English, a famous pirate haunt and once a favoured spot of his old nemesis Bellamy and Labuse. The ones who got away, though after the sinking of the widow, only Labuse is still at large. It's the 13th of June, 1718. The Scarborough skirts around the western shore of Blanco Island. As Hume notes in his log, we saw riding under ye west end of ye Isle of Blanco a ship and a sloop. He quickly assesses the scene. Two vessels moored together. From a distance, one might mistake the white flag fluttering aloft to be a French ensign. But through his spyglass, Hume makes out the telltale insignia, the black skeletal figure dancing in the breeze. The flag of Olivier Labuse. The cry of pirates quickly tears through the ship. The well-drilled crew man their posts and roll out the long guns. Snipers scramble up the rigging ready to take pot shots as they close in. Unfortunately, they won't get the satisfaction this time. Olivier Lavasseur isn't called Labuse, the buzzard, for nothing. Seeing the British warship, the veteran buccaneer takes flight. The pirates abandon their own ship and scramble aboard the small prize vessel that they were in the process of looting, the Bonita a British turtle sloop from Nevis. They quickly cut the moorings, slip the anchor cable and make sail, escaping into open water. Chasing the faster vessel is pointless. The Scarborough instead takes possession of the hastily abandoned pirate ship. Hastily indeed, it seems not all of the pirates managed to get clear. Hume and a group of armed sailors board the vessel where they take captive 19 very sullen-looking pirates, along with the relieved-looking crew of the Bonita. Neither party can quite believe their luck. 
Once again, the vigilant Hume has caught pirates in the act, at anchor, and unsuspecting. By rights, Captain Hume should return to Barbados, his station, with the prize. But it seems he's already expecting problems with the Barbados governor, Robert Lowther. On the 5th of July, 1718, the Scarborough sails into Antigua, where the pirate ship is legally condemned and placed under the personal jurisdiction of Hume on behalf of the Admiralty. However, they are unwilling to take receipt of the pirates. This, they claim, is outside of their jurisdiction. The Boston newsletter is soon full of glowing reports of Hume's latest victory, calling the Portuguese vessel the Blanco and mentioning the 17 French pirates and the 50 liberated Englishmen aboard. It also notes the other cargo, an abundance of chests of gold and silver, all totaling upwards of 4,000 pounds. Soon Hume will be locked in a personal legal battle with his own governor who will covet the valuables and refuse the pirates. It's a bureaucratic nightmare common in the region, where each governor, official body and state actor all want their own cut of the booty. It's a swamp of grasping ambitions and a major reason why piracy will continue to flourish. So this is the double-edged sword of the particular way that England and later Britain managed its imperial affairs. For better or worse, England at the dawn of the colonization of the Western Hemisphere was this scrappy power, just trying to hold things together. They almost had to rely on their merchant and commercial sector and private capital is how we would describe it to do some of these things. Some colonies were crown colonies where in theory the king controlled them, but many others were in fact investments, right? They were each in essence kind of business operations with their own power bases, rivals and the like. Soon enough, the colonies would get serious about going after pirates themselves. More and more naval ships were arriving each month and jurisdictions would start working better together. But still the old problem would remain. The English and British space was messy. In a sense, it made it dynamic, but it also made it difficult to defend and more easy for operators like pirates to play off one power base against another. The lesson Captain Hume learns the hard way is that piracy springs out of gaps in the very system that allows the empire to exist. The Caribbean is a mess of competing powers, overlapping jurisdictions, and governors with their own agendas. For Royal Navy captains tasked with going after pirates, the rewards rarely outweigh the risks. For all these reasons and more, the authorities will soon realize that the pirates of the Caribbean are far from finished. Next week on Real Pirates. The full force of Imperial authority is about to come crashing down on the pirates of the Caribbean and one man in particular will lead the charge. That man is Captain Woods Rogers. Merchant, slaver, explorer, war hero. He's a man of many talents. But above all, he's a hardened mariner who won't shrink from a fight. We dive into his past to reveal the experiences that made the man. 
the man who is tasked with bringing an end to the Republic of Pirates on Nassau. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Written and produced by McAllister Bexon. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres-Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.